good morning, everybody. Welcome. My name is David, and I have the great privilege of serving here as the pastor at Redeemer Church. And we are in uh, the third or fourth week of a series we're doing called Homegrown, which is all about growing stronger families. And today we are going to look at something that I know parents, uh, families are thinking about right now. I, I, I know this is something that we as a society are wrestling with and something that I also think that Jesus and Christian faith speak really well to. Uh, we're going to talk about entitlement and today's message is titled, How to Fight Entitlement in Your Family. And uh, we're going to to explore some of this by looking at uh, the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. If you brought a Bible, that's awesome. If you did not, uh, in the chair ahead of you, hopefully you're one of those chairs, there should be uh, a Bible. And I'd really encourage you to pull it out and to follow along as we are working through this passage and trying to understand it. Um, you can find it on page 848 in that Bible in your seats. Uh, but right now, once you get it, I just want you to put your finger there and hold it because we're going to actually read it in just a little bit. So uh, why don't we go ahead then, as is our pattern, and bow our heads and pray before we hear God's word of the message. Lord, we um, really thank you for just the chance that we have to gather today and uh, the fact that we get to be a part of a family that is bigger than our blood, but that is built by your blood, Lord, and, um, and that includes uh, enough children to line this entire stage, Lord. I just pray that as we lead and guide this next generation, that you would speak words that would help us do that well this morning. It's in your holy name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, I think what I realized when I was spending a lot of time this last week thinking about entitlement is, is that I, the, the path to entitlement is really a, a kind of a slippery slope. And looking back, I, I think that I can remember when perhaps my feet were taking the first steps down that slippery path. Jesse had just been born and Jesse, our oldest, had just been born, and at a baby shower, somebody had given us a gift card to buy some practical things, and specifically a toy. And so we went to the store, and I have no recollection of what practical things we bought, but I want to show you exactly which toy we purchased. It was this fella. Uh, anybody have one of these, seen one of these before? It's, uh, it's the brand, um, actually, I didn't know how to pronounce it at first. I called it Lamaze, like it was French or something. It's Lamaz, and uh, this is an octopus. And um, I just want to say this is an amazing toy. It's absolutely an amazing toy. It, uh, it has, um, as all the marketing material let me know, uh, enough things on here to stimulate your child's senses to open up their imagination, and to optimize their brain development. Thank you, Lamaze, for letting me know all that about this toy. It, uh, it has bright colors, right, and patterns to kind of make, make that happen. Spoiler alert. Um, it also has all these colors to introduce them to, uh, to learning colors. It has different textures, right, and uh, that, that 
stimulate their tactile development, and, uh, and it introduces them to the animal kingdom in a very strange way. Um, but as you heard, th the real thing that's wonderful about this toy is um, it plays music. Each one of these legs, before my son Johnny beat the snot out of it, um, played an individual note that you could hear and that we would spend hours like trying to play Mary Had a Little Lamb on or something, and I never could figure the darn thing out. <laughs> but, uh, but this is it. Like when we went to the store and I read about this toy and saw like what kind of possibilities it opened up for my son, I was sold, right? Uh, we bought that thing and, and, and we were making not just uh, something to get him happy and fun, a toy, but this was an investment in his future, right? Uh, this was something that was going to get him on the path to being a very smart young man, uh, to being educated, to get him eventually down the road to, you know, maybe even an Ivy League school, right? This octopus was going to be part of that plan. And of course, I'm kidding. I never really had that thought, um, except that actually, honestly, I think that I kind of did. I, I think that, um, that I started to think differently about something I had never thought differently before. I started to feel this pressure that I had never felt be before and, and started to think that this toy was critical in the development of my child's um, life. Not that I actually thought that, but it was there in, in the background, and it spoke to all of these desires that I had underneath the surface, like the desire to be a good dad, to give my son this fun, exciting, beautiful childhood, to set him up to succeed in life. This toy got into all those things that were there in the recesses of my psyche, and like I said, it made me think about toys in a way I never had ever done before. We went to the store just wanting to get him something fun, and we left thinking, I've got to make the right decision about what's most important for his future. And that was such an interesting shift. I didn't even know it was happening when it happened, but it was then that I think that perhaps my feet got onto that slippery slope. You know, I, I, I think entitlement in children actually begins with parents. It begins with that desire, that good desire in us to be great parents, right? To give our kids everything, right? The joy of things like the zoo, the wonder of exploring and touching all of the, the, the things that they can explore at a museum, right? Sometimes the magic of something that you want to give them like Disney, right? And then we want them as they get older to pursue their interests and discover their passions, to play on a soccer team, to have the joy of curtsying at the end of a dance recital. All those are good things that parents want for their children and really do not he hear me saying anything other than that is good, okay? But what I'm also saying is that there is this tendency in us that is reinforced in our culture for that to, to suddenly get a little bit unbalanced, to go out of, of hand. And what happens it, it is that we're no longer just wanting our kid to, to, to grow up and have a good education 
we're now suddenly thinking that if they are going to have a good job, they need to go to the best school possible around where they're dabbling in Latin by second grade and painting frameable artwork shortly thereafter, right? It, it, it's, it isn't just that we want them to learn to hit a baseball. It's that somehow when they get to middle school, I, I've been led to believe that if they're going to take it to the next level, I've got to make more of an investment in what's going on in their lives with this. And, and, and again, I, I want to say, I don't think those things are necessarily negative. But what I think happens is that there are some unintended consequences that we maybe have never thought about before. Because here's what happens. When we put our kids first all the time, what we'll begin to notice is that they've never really learned to be second. When we give them every advantage, they never learn to have eyes for those who are disadvantaged. When we're giving them most of what they want, they're not able to differentiate what they want from what they need. And, and we don't even realize any of it is happening until one day it smacks us in the face. I heard a dad talking about how one time he was at home one evening with his eight, seven-year-old son, and his son said, Dad, I want that brand new iPhone that's coming out, you know, that costs like six, seven hundred dollars. And dad said no, and this is what shocked him. The son got really, really upset and offended. Like he was actually thinking that his dad ought to buy him this phone, right? This was his expectation that this is actually what he told his dad was, if you were a good dad, you would buy me this phone, right? And, and that comes from somewhere. There's a history behind it. And, and, and so what do, you, what do you do about it? What do you do when your kid is asking you that question and you realize that something's gone wrong, you know? Or how do we actually, even better, how do we maybe prevent that from ever even happening? And, and this is where I think Jesus is so helpful, this is where I want you to open up to the passage of Scripture that we're going to read this morning. Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. Just to give you some context, Jesus has been invited to a party. And this is at the house of a really prominent religious leader. And so Jesus goes to this party. He is enjoying himself. He's engaged. And he sees something that people are doing that he decides to speak to. And that is where we enter our text. Let me go ahead and read it. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so... The host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
You know, what's really important to understand um, in understanding what's going on in this passage is that, is that seating arrangements in ancient Israel were really important because they were a way that, that social status was visualized. When you sat at a party like this that Jesus is at, it was a public announcement to everyone about how important you were. It was a statement about who this person was, how, how important they were, and, and more specifically, how important they were relative to the other people that were there at the party. And in ancient Israel, tables weren't just rectangles like we have now. In a home, they would have been a U, like so a U where there'd be a middle section and then two sections going out. And the host would sit at really, if it's a curved U, at that bottom of the curve in the U, and then the most important, the places, the places of highest honor would be on the right hand and the left hand of that table. And they would cascade down to places of lesser honor. So, for instance, if you were going to have a party uh, today with one of these tables and you wanted to invite the Houston Texans, right, on your right hand would be J.J. Uh, Watt and on your left hand would be Deshaun Watson, right? the highest, most important places. And by the way, this would be a pity party because of how horrible the season is now that both of those guys are gone. But, um, but, but that's how you would set it up. It, th- those are the guys that would be in those seats because they're probably the most important in the entire team. And then people of lesser social status would, would go on down to the bottom, like Tom Savage would be way, way over there. But, uh, but this is what Jesus is speaking to in this passage. He notices how some particular guests are at this party. They're kind of asserting themselves into these seats of highest or higher honor. Like they're, they're going up and they're like, oh, let me just put my purse here. You know, let me, let me hang my coat on this chair. And, and to be fair, um, that actually wasn't an unusual practice in Jesus' day. This is something that people actually did. If you wanted to climb the social ladder, one, you tried to get invited to the party, right? But two, you would kind of try to slide in to those seats that were uh, uh, of higher prominence. And, and so if you wanted to be in one of those highest seats, you would like talk nicely to the host you know, and then put your purse there and hope nothing was said. It was like an ancient form of brown nosing, really. <laughs> but but this, is, this is where Jesus sees this and says, let's try something different. Instead of what you're doing, when you try to get into the highest place, do the opposite. Don't assert yourself into the first place. Sit in the last place. Start by sitting in the least important place seed. And firstly, he identifies one very practical reason for doing that. He reminds them that this assertion of where you socially are has to be validated, right? (laughs) So the host could look at you and say, "Uh uh-uh, you know, you need to go sit somewhere else. Or someone who is more important than you could show up and, uh, and then you're not going to get to stay in the same seat. You don't want to be Tom Savage when Deshaun Watson gets healthy again, right? You're going to be s- demoted, and if you think you deserve that seat, it's going to be humiliated, right? And so it's better to sit at the lowest place and get a promotion than to sit at the highest place and get a demotion, right? So that's the practical reason Jesus gives us advice. But secondly, and this is really the core of what we're after this morning, Jesus wants to to teach his people humility. 
right? This is about their hearts and their minds and the lesson that Jesus wants to get in, into the minds of, uh, of his people is, is humility. He, he wants them to see that there's a better way, a non-entitled way, an unassuming way that doesn't pitch you against other people, but instead builds other people up. And, and ultimately, a, a humble way that when we embody it will make by far the d- biggest difference in the world and one that people will recognize as actually being the better way. Verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, Jesus concludes, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will will be exalted. This is the conclusion that Jesus offers at the end of this parable. This is what he wants us to understand. And and I just think it is such an amazing verse. You know, there's a short list of scriptures that I want my kids to really memorize. And uh, and when I study this passage, I realize that this is one of the scriptures that needs to be on it. Because this is, this is what I realized w- when I was looking at all this this week, humility is actually the medicine for entitlement. Humility is the anecdote when we are sick with the disease of entitlement. Because how do prideful, think about this, how do prideful, entitled people get better? How do they overcome it? Well, they don't really ever choose it, right? We have this saying, pride comes before a fall, right? They get humiliated, which I never realized until this week, which is actually the same word as humble, except you don't choose it. Humiliation is being humble against your will, right? (laughs) I, I, I never put that together. Being humiliated is when you get to be humble and you didn't really want to, right? And, uh, and, 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 What, what Jesus is, he, he points that out, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but, but he, he also helped me see something else, that the opposite was true. If you're humble, you're never really entitled. Like, these things work against one another. Have you ever seen a person who is both acting in an entitled way and exhibits humility at the same time? Think about that for a second. I was thinking in my mind, I didn't do tons of work here, but I could not think of one person who I would describe as humble who also seemed to have other attributes of entitlement, right? We are either assuming things for ourselves, or we are unassuming and thinking about other people. That's what humility is. It's thinking more about others and less about ourselves. C.S. Lewis once gave an awesome definition of humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So what he's saying is that it's not about like thinking you have less self-worth. It's not denying yourself the things that you need or honestly, even some of the good things that you want. What he's saying is that humility happens when we're not the ones always at the forefront of our minds. 
Like when we begin to recognize that there are other people in the world that I need to share my toys with, right? When, when I begin to be conscious of other people and their well-being and then I reorient my life to, to include them in the choices that I make in, in a way that maybe even puts them ahead of myself. That's what humility is. And if humility is the medicine for entitlement, and I, I really think it is, I think the question that we have to ask ourselves as parents is how do we build it in our kids? How do we get kids who are humble? And, and I just want to offer you all a couple of thoughts, some from the scriptures and, and, and some other really practical ones from people who know far more about this than I do. But, but here, here's the first one. If you want to get your kids to be humble, remove privileges to teach gratitude. Remove privileges to teach gratitude. If your kids are struggling with entitlement or if they struggle with entitlement, try to help them being appreciative of the good things that they have by removing some of them from their life. My parents did this to me with great effectivity. I bet a lot of yours did too, but I heard a pastor named John Orpug say, you can't be grateful for something that you believe you're entitled to. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? That w- and this is what smacks so badly about the kid that wants the iPhone. That is an incredible gift, right? If he was to actually receive an iPhone, man, I would think that should be a surprise, and he should be good for the next three years, right? I don't need to buy him anything else, right? He should, he should be so thankful, uh, but, but he wasn't, right? Because he thought this is something that he deserved. He was entitled to it. And, uh, and if we think we deserve something, we're not going to be appropriately thankful for it. And, and it's interesting, in this scripture, one of the things that I think Jesus is maybe even suggesting underneath the surface is, is that we shouldn't be so worried about what seat we're sitting in, but be thankful that we were invited to this party at all, right? It, it, it's not saying, don't worry about the seat. Be thankful that there is any seat for you and you got included at all. Like, and, and, and this is the kind of thing that, that I want uh, my kids to, to understand, this, this other layer underneath it, right? Be, be, because when they are entitled, one of the signs of that is that they lack gratitude. They aren't able to make the connections that help them see how privileged they are. They need to understand that soccer isn't an expectation. Soccer's a privilege, something that they get to do at great uh, time and finances and energy to the for their parents. Like, that picking up a bedroom isn't a chore. It's part of the incredible privilege of having a bedroom and having toys, right? That extracurricular activities aren't something that we expect, but are instead extracurricular, beyond what is expected, and depends on their ability to do the things well that are not extra. When, when, our kids understand those things rightly, they suddenly learn to be thankful. And when they don't, they're entitled. So if, if your kids are missing the balance or when they do, uh, parents, wh- what they've done for a long time, and like I said, what my parents did, what I bet yours did, 
is they removed some of the things that the kids have come to expect, right? If you have a child who's whining about not watching enough TV or playing tablet or having the phone, you know, I think one approach you could take is removing that and an internet connection and live like we did in the olden days, right? Like, (laughs) I'm really thankful we don't live in the olden days anymore. But I, I remember what it was like, and I remember how much joy I had when Finally, I had an internet connection that take, took a minute to load a single page, right? Like, uh, if you have a high schooler that's struggling to respect some of the rules that you've put um, on them in terms of curfew and, and being out with friends, and they have a vehicle, take away the keys, right? Like, it may be more inconvenient for you, but, but I think when they have to ride the bus or figure out the challenge that, that it's going to take to get done what they want to get done, they're going to suddenly be really, really thankful when they get those keys back. Right? There's, there's a verse that comes to mind. Uh, well, I- the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.9. If you have a kid that is not pulling their weight around the house, 2 Thessalonians 3.9. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat, right? (laughs) Now, I'm not suggesting that you don't feed your kids, right? But there's a principle there. There's wisdom there. If you feed them sugarless oatmeal for the next three meals every day for a week, my guess is they're going to start pulling their weight. And I'm not saying that this is easy, but I'm saying it's worked. Like, this is a strategy, long time, that, that, is, that is really helpful and sometimes can correct a lack of gratitude in, in our kids' lives. It can collect, correct a lack of gratitude in our lives, too. Right, here, here's another thing um, I think is really critical in helping kids uh, become more humble. What we need to do is help our kids admit it when they're wrong. We need to help our kids admit it when they are wrong. I've observed over the years, I bet you have too, that there aren't too many kids who naturally will say, I messed up, I'm sorry, I did wrong, just on, on their own. Like, and maybe that's related to the fact that there aren't too many adults who will naturally like say, I messed up, I'm sorry. Like, uh, but, but, but kids, I don't think, are going to be able to demonstrate humility if they're never able to say that they messed up. To say that, that they were wrong, it's the ability to admit our own failures and to overcome that instinct of defensiveness that rises up in us, which is actually one of the sure signs that a person has a characteristic of humility, that they've gotten to that level of maturity. And so what I think we need to do is try to help our kids admit their failures, and this is the best way I think to do it. I think we need to model it for them ourselves. I think we need to say when we've messed up, when we've been too angry, when we've gotten uh, louder than we should have, when we've come down on them or their brother or their sister or our spouse to say, dad messed up and, and he's sorry and, and, and model that for him. I'll never forget this. Um, when Jesse was really little, like eight months old, and I found an old picture. There's that little stinker, right? Uh, and he had messed up. No, she, uh, he was eight months old, and uh, a- and Shannon was with him one day, and uh, and 
I don't remember all the details about this, and neither did Shannon when I asked her about it last night, but something happened, and she got really upset, and Jesse was with her, and she, I don't know, um, started yelling or got angry, and she looked over in the middle of what was going on and noticed that Jesse's eyes were, like, big, and he was a little scared of what was happening, right? And and she felt terrible, right? Because here's this eight-month-old, and she's like, ah, what have I done? And so later, what she she did is she sat Jesse down at eight, at eight months old on the couch and said, Jesse, mommy lost her temper, and I am so sorry about it. I didn't mean to do that. I shouldn't have done that. And And then she told me about it, and I'll be honest, I was laughing a little bit because I could just envision her and Jesse with his big eyes, like, what is mommy doing, <laughs> you know? But, uh, but it also reminded me of, like, why I love that woman so much, right? It's because she had recognized that she had done something wrong and immediately wanted to let Jesse know that mommy's not perfect. She messed up. And by the way, spoiler alert, your kids know you're not perfect already, right? So, so you might as well go ahead and tell them, the, and acknowledge the things you do that aren't right, that you could have done better, that, because that shows them humility. And, and we respect people who are humble, and that's what we want in our kids. Like, like when you model that for your children, you're showing them a safe way, a healthy way to admit to wrongdoings. Like you don't, you don't spin a lie you don't try to hide it, sweep it under the rug. You confess it. You say, I was wrong. And if you will do that for your kids, I think that will go such a long way in helping build them up as humble people. Okay? H- here's the last one. I-, I think that you all recognize as part of this conversation that you cannot give your kids everything that they want. Right? We- we've got that. Right? Maybe not even most of what they want is, is probably good. But, but here's the kicker. You can't give them everything you want for them either. Do you hear that? If you want to fight entitlement in your kids, you have to fight entitlement in yourself too. And I think this is the one that hits closest to home because uh, it does for me. There's a lot that I want to give my kids. Right? Th- there's a lot that I want for myself, but, but this is what I think that I, I've come to realize. It doesn't matter how many things we try in terms of tactics or books we read or principles we apply to, to build up great kids and, to, and to, to fight this entitlement instinct in them. If we are not going to model what we want for our kids, they're going to see that it's going to trump everything else that's going on in our lives. This is the other side to the entitlement coin, us. We have to model for our children what we want them to become. And this is exactly where Jesus is so helpful because everything that Jesus ever asked us to do, he modeled himself, right? Think about this. He tells in, at this dinner meeting uh, all these people that, that you should go for the humble seat, that you should be the one who, who takes the least place. And then you know, these disciples who are with him later on in an upper room remember this moment when, when he gets down on his knees. He takes the place of a servant and washes their feet because nobody else wanted to do it. He showed them exactly the pattern that he wanted them to live, not to be served, but he came 
to serve. Jesus asked nothing of us that he didn't want and show in himself. And it's the exact same for us and our families. If we want to fight entitlement in our kids, we have to fight it in ourselves too. If I'm buying new stuff all the time, I can't really tell my kids that they can't have the new things that they want. If I complain and whine about not getting my way, if I make scenes in a public place, how can I expect or be surprised when my kids do anything that's different from that? If I take every vacation I want, if I buy every bit of new clothing or man tool or whatever, who's watching the whole time and what message are we sending? Like, don't give yourself everything that you want. Don't give your kids everything that they want. And don't give your kids everything that you want for them. Okay? Instead, if you want humble kids, be humble. That's what our kids need to see in us. They need to see us being a servant, like going out and serving others, especially those who have a lot less privilege than we do. They need to see us being generous with what we have, like not keeping all that we have for ourselves, but giving to others. They need to see us recognizing that there is a good God who is the giver, as James says, of every good and perfect gift. So, so that the, the, the they see us being thankful and having that gratitude that's so key in their lives. And if we bring our kids alongside us in those things where we're humble, where we're serving, where we're being generous, I think that more than anything else will go a long ways to fight entitlement in your kids. I know it's not easy, but church, I know you can do this. And I want you to know that I am praying for you guys all the time, along in my own prayers, um, that you would be able to do this, that you would see the ways that God is moving you here, and and that day by day, we, we would be investing and building up rightly the lives of the next generation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for how when we want to sit in the highest seats, you, you call out that in us. You call it out even when it's about these children that we love, Lord, and you help us to see a better way. And I just pray that as this message, uh, this, this axiom that you give us, Lord, as we hear it, that it would sink into our hearts, that we would be able to look over the things that are happening in our lives, to think about them, and, and, and to, to help it um, build our families and ourselves into people who are more like, like your son Jesus. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would do that individual work, Lord, and that we would respond to what you're calling us to do. We pray that in, in the, the powerful, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.